Hey guys, good morning. You guys are way more lively actually than I thought that I was gonna be. Sometimes you get to the Sunday and you're like, I'm gonna go for like five minutes and get out because I'm gonna be honest, everyone's just gonna sleep. So that's fine if you do. That It's not if you sleep. That Let's try to stay awake, but it's all cool. Actually, I'm gonna do this. I want us to stand again uh, together. I know, it's terrible, but getting the blood flowing. I want you to turn to Colossians. I want you to go to chapter one. I want you to be in the ESV again. I want to read this last section together, all right? Yeah, just loud and proud once again. ESV, you can do it. Getting the blood flowing, getting the brain working. Colossians 1. All right, so we're going to be, I want you, okay, this is tricky. So verse 18, all right, you see verse 18? Okay, everyone good? See verse 18. Don't read the first sentence in verse 18, otherwise you'll be incorrect as we read all this together, right? I want you to start on the second sentence in verse 18. That's going to be what we're going to be reading today. So that, that phrase, he is the beginning, all right? That's where we're going to start. I'm going to read to the end of verse 20. Sound good? Count of three. One, two, three. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All right, sweet. You guys can take a seat. Good work. (laughs) Okay, so this final message for you guys from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, is that Jesus is the reconciler of all things. Okay, that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. Jesus is the reconciler of all things. Um, uh, so uh, I am the oldest of six kids in my family. Okay, so my, uh, uh, I'm, I'm in my 30s, and my, my youngest brother, Sam, uh, is actually just a freshman in high school. Okay, so there's like a big time gap between all of the Norrises. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of us. A bunch of us are married now. Some of us have kids now. So our family's just kind of getting bigger and bigger. Uh, but uh, my, my second brother, okay, so the one who's right below me, he's only 18 months uh, uh, difference between me. So he's like the super cool version of me, basically, okay? So he's kind of always been that way. Blake works, his name's Blake. He works for a music company in Chicago. Like, he's just like as cool as cool can be, all right? So, and in high school, he was always like the funnier one. He like, you know, did more creative stuff, yada, yada, yada. And so there was always like a little bit of tension between me and my brother. And yet we were like best friends, okay? So some of you guys have like siblings like that, where you're like, I hate you more than anyone, but you're my guy. You know, like, and, I, and I'm always with you, and we have the same friends. I kind of hate you, but, you know, we're, we're all there. So, so that was Blake and I, like, loved each other like crazy. Also, no one could get on each other's nerves more than each other. That's brothers, right? So, um, but uh, there was a fateful day where the Norris Rumble really occurred. Um, so Blake, I don't even remember what was happening, but it was kind of one of those, like, so Jordan did this, did this just the other day, okay? So it was one of the most offensive things I've ever seen. He did it to Isaac, and uh, apparently this is what you do. Uh, you walk up to someone... Okay, and you start apparently just poking them in the forehead. <laughs> and you say, name 20 animals, name 20 animals, name 20 animals. Name. And so, and, it's, and Isaac tried. He started with B. You guys like bison, buffalo, that's the same thing. I don't think that counted, right? So, so uh, yeah, and Jordan wouldn't stop until I have it. Apparently, you do that to people, Jordan. That's like, that's, okay. Just every now and then. When you like really hate someone, right? So, so Blake was like kind of in a more like 
metaphorical sense doing that to me, all right? So like, like just kind of this doing that, like poking, poking, poking. So, well, we're playing Super Smash Brothers, like you do. Uh, and, and Blake and I kind of have always a Royal Rumble when, well, not in the back of the day. He's way too much of a nerd now, and I can't play against him. It's stupid. But, but back in the day, it was like, like, you know, the two titans going against one another, that type of thing. So, and that's what was happening. And Blake was just kind of doing that, you know, verbally to me the whole time. Um, so anyway, so, so we're going, and, and our friends are down there too. So we're down in our basement, so all of our friends are there and everything like that. I don't remember what happened. Blake won, and he said something snarky, and I threw a controller at him. Come on, you know, don't even pretend like you guys haven't done that before. All right, so, so threw, threw him a controller at him, you know, and, and, then, and then we start playing again, and, and he beats me again, and still just doing that. So this time I throw a shoe at him. Um, so we're starting to, uh, and then he starts doing that even more. So finally I jump him, okay? And what resulted in was just, Blake and I never, like, really got physical. We'd get, like, angry at each other and, like, yell at each other, but we'd never get physical. But this time we got physical. And we're downstairs in our basement, like shoving each other, headlocking each other. The fight like ended with my forearm on his throat and Blake grabbing my throat, okay? So it was like that. It was like stalemate. And, and all of my friends are like all standing there like, like they were witnessing this, like watching it happen. Two brothers like beat the tar out of each other over Super Smash Brothers. But he was doing that to me the whole time, so he kind of deserved it. And I would have won if it weren't for my dad going, Blake, Andy, what is happening? You know, and then we all stopped. But, but here's, here's what's interesting, right? When, like, family members are divided and there's tension and there's brokenness, it is messy and awkward for everyone else around them, right? It's, like, tense, and it's disturbing when you see family broken, and you see family, and you see relationships, and you see people who should be united together divided, it jacks everybody up, and it's disturbing, okay? So that's where I want us to think about, I think, this morning as we process through Jesus' reconciler. Um, I want to talk about just three specific things. I want to talk about sin's division this morning. I want to talk about God's solution to the division this morning. And then I want to talk about our hope despite division. Okay, so I'm going to talk about sin's division, God's solution to that division, and then our hope in the midst of division. Okay, so let's start with sin's division. So all throughout the Bible, we see God has purposefully set up us and him to be unified together. Okay, you see that in the Genesis account right away with Adam and Eve. All right, Adam and Eve in the garden and unity together with God. Okay, there is vertical and horizontal unity in the Garden of Eden, okay? Adam and Eve, it said that they were naked and unashamed. We always laugh when we read that text, but like, it's like, the reality is this. There was zero brokenness between Adam and Eve. And the way in which God set up humanity, there was supposed to be complete joyful unity between each other. But then, but then even more profoundly is that there was deep unity between them and God, okay? So like they're having deep, they're walking with God in the garden, okay? There's unity all around, a vertical unity and horizontal unity. And we see that, and then we see at the very end of everything. So God set it up that way, and then we see in Revelation all throughout, right, that there's all of these people all coming, coming together. I mentioned this the first night, Revelation chapter 7, we talk about worship, right? That there's every tribe, every tongue, every nation all coming together and saying, glory be to God and the Lamb that was slain. Over and over and over again for the rest of 
all of eternity, we're going to be saying that. And notice this, complete unity with God and complete unity with each other. When God talks about unity, it's a holistic unity, okay? It's not just as long as I'm good with Jesus and I'm not okay with anyone else, then we're fine. Or flip side, I think our culture does this. As long as we're good with each other, we're fine, right? Think about that. Like, so much of the movements that are happening in our society right now is an embracing of unity as an end of itself. You know what I mean? The greatest virtue you could ever attain is being unified, right? Like, whether it's like, I mean, the LBGTQ, it's all, that's the end goal, unity. Like, even a secular version on racial reconciliation, the goal is just unity for unity's sake, okay? But what God articulates is the whole goal of your unity is so that you are holistically with me. And that I've set it up so that it's you and us all together with me. That's what happens. That's biblical unity. It's vertical and horizontal. You can't separate the two. It's all together, okay? God set it up that way, and then the sin curse came in, okay? And then you look all throughout the Bible, and you see God constantly seeking to draw people to himself and draw people together and people are consistently screwing it up just over and over and over and over again. And I could go for a really long time just walking you through that. But you can see just kind of these this big meta-narrative themes, right? So, so you got like the Garden of Eden and immediately what happens is what? There's sin and there's division now between Adam and even God. They get kicked out of the garden, but there's also division between them. They hide from each other. One of the first things that happened after the fall is they covered their nakedness. They hid from one another. Immediate brokenness in the unity right away. You keep going, though, and you see God sets up a family, okay? Abraham and his family. And God promises to them, I'm actually going to bring all this unity back together, okay? Through you, you're going to be a blessing to the whole world. You're going to be my people. I'm going to give you lands. Like, he's just articulating, I'm going to bring all this back together, guys. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do, do it through your family, Abraham, okay? And what immediately happens with Abraham's family is a constant disobedience to God over and over and over again, causing distance between him and those people. But then, and especially all throughout the book of Genesis, guys, the book of Genesis is just a full of jacked up, disgusting people. And Abraham's family, the chosen family, is way more jacked up than your family could ever be, let me tell you. Over and over and over again, just brokenness, brokenness, brokenness. Okay, so, and one of the worst ones was Abraham's uh, grandson Jacob and his kids, okay? His kids got so divided and so messed up that they sold one of their own brothers into slavery. They hated him so much. So this family that God said, hey, I'm gonna use you to bring the whole world together so that you can be in unity with me again, can't even stay together within their own family. Just jacking it up every sense of the word over and over and over again. But then you see the nation of Israel, okay, that God has said through David, King David, that you are going to be a blessing to the whole world. You see it even with King Solomon, okay? And some of you know that story. King Solomon was the richest man of all of history, equivalent now of basically like a like, like $200 billion is basically what the dude would have made, you know, something like that. It's crazy. Um, but you're seeing a beautiful picture, and even the nation of Israel was saying, I think God's kingdom has come because look at what Solomon is doing. All of the kings and national leaders all across the known world are coming to Jerusalem to catch a glimpse on what God is doing in the nation of Israel. 
through the wise king who's being loyal to, loyal to Yahweh, doing profound things. We're looking at it and you're saying like, oh my gosh, Lord, you're unified with your people. Solomon made the temple, God's dwelling in the land all of a sudden, and then people all across the nations are coming to like be around it. Everyone's, you look at the Old Testament, you're like, it's here, he's done it. And then Solomon screws it up. And he just completely forsakes God, becomes apostate, becomes an idolater, worshiping all the other gods that are all around him, is not a moral leader at all, has 700 wives and 300 concubines. Everything that we thought that was going to be okay is now completely broken. And then as a result of that, as a result of his sin, the whole nation of Israel becomes fractured. It gets split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Nope. Disunity once again. People are screwing it up. God's consistently saying, I'm going to draw you to myself, and then humans consistently screw it up. Vertical and horizontally, they screwed up. And guys, we completely see this today. It's still happening. There's vertical brokenness. Think of your campus. Just think, just think of the you right now. And the vertical brokenness that exists. On like an intellectual level, right? Of some of the classes that you guys are in and the worldviews that are being perpetuated. Massive brokenness. But then even just in the own individuals, whether it's you, yourself, or just friends that you have, of insane brokenness and separation and distrust in who God is, right? Vertical brokenness, vertical distance between us and man. And ultimately, we know that there is a massive, infinite chasm of brokenness between us and God. If any of you have seen the Grand Canyon before, so like greatest road trip of my life was my junior year, okay? So guys, just... I'm going to go ahead and just put this in your back pocket. So what, Northwest Iowa. I drove from Northwest Iowa, okay, to Denver, all right? So, like, you know, through the boring states and got to Denver, and all of a sudden everything's amazing, right? Because see mountains, mountains, Gandalf, mountains. So, so saw that, and it was amazing. And then, and, then and, and we start going, we go through Utah, okay? We go to Arches National Park. We go to Zion National Park. We go to all these beautiful things. Go up through uh, California, okay? Went through, the, went through Vegas, thought we were awesome, thinking to be exactly like Ocean's Eleven, okay? So we're like, we're like, you know, we're all above 18, so... We may or may not have been smoking cigars, and we thought we were like, okay, we're going to walk in, and everyone's going to be in suits, but we're going to be in flannels, and it'll be hilarious. So we were like, so that'll be super funny. So we walked in, and it was like the most depressing place you could ever see. You know what I mean? We're in Caesar's Palace, and there's like retired folk just like doing slots machines, and I'm like, Ocean's Eleven's a lie. It's actually not cool here. So, but okay, Vegas, Death Valley. San Francisco, all the way up, okay, through Redwood National Forest, up through Oregon to the tip of Washington to visit my friend's grandma, give her high five, she made us a great meal, drove through then Idaho, returned to dude his pillow, that was the whole goal of the whole trip. Guy left his pillow in a dorm room, needed to bring it back to him. He lived in Idaho, so we did it. Uh, and then through Idaho, went through Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, back to Iowa in 10 days over spring break, guys. I'm just waiting for y'all, one of y'all to say challenge accepted, and, uh, and then you'll send me your video blog of all of it. So, okay, but here's what was crazy. We show up, okay, to, uh, and we're just Iowa boys, and, and we're driving up, and we, we wanted to go see the Grand Canyon, okay? So what's crazy about the Grand Canyon is you're literally just kind of driving into, just, it just looks like a 
park. You know what I mean? Um, and so there's like trees everywhere, yada, yada. So you're pulling up, all these signs of Grand Canyon, you're just like, this thing doesn't even exist. Like, what's happening? So, so, so you pull up, and then you literally like cross a clearing, and it's just, boom. I mean, the settlers, when they saw that thing, I think they thought that the apocalypse was here. Like, it's like jarring how, how massive it is. It's, you know, one of the seven wonders of the world. And you're saying, like, it, this is the largest chasm I've, like, ever experienced. It's insane. I can't believe it. And you feel, like, messed up a little bit and looking at, like, it is literally impossible for me to get to this side, to that side, without dying. Like, like I can't actually go through there in that long. And so... I. That, that chasm is just that, that constant understanding of how we think about our distance between us and God. The very thought of me leaping from one side of the Grand Canyon to the other, like it, it, even a child wouldn't think that that would be possible. Like even in his own imagination, you know how kids are just like, I could jump as far as, they wouldn't even say, I can't, I can't go that far because they would see how massive it is on an infinite scale. The chasm that we have between us and God is impossible to overcome. That's how wide the division is vertically between us and God. Infinite chasm that's impossible to scale. Okay, so, but there's also vertical brokenness. I'm sorry, horizontal brokenness as well. Relationships are broken. Families are broken. Our society is broken. Our history is broken especially here in the United States. And what's really interesting is that throughout history, the human race has come up with really amazing ways to sin creatively and in, in disgusting ways. One of America's original sins is the incredible creative way in which we've come up with how to totally demean a group of people who have a completely different color of skin than someone else. And that's the enslavement of Africans in the United States slave trade. And the second would be what we did to the Native Americans. Specifically, though, just talk about the slave trade of Africans. For 200 years, there's been division between whites and blacks in the United States. And we just have ripple effects of like what we learned in our history on how to treat people who look differently than us now has ripple effects upon every other race in the United States right now too. But the 200 systemic, purposeful separation between whites and blacks, racism is one of the worst creative sins we've come up with. To literally demean somebody because of the color of their skin. Think of them as less than. It's demonic. That's how disgusting it is. For over 200 years, the country that we live in has been affected by this. And it's also affected the church of Jesus Christ. It was Martin Luther King who said this, that the most segregated hour of the week is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And if you think about it, that is still totally true. While our schools and our sports teams, and our workplaces are becoming more, our campuses are becoming more and more and more and more diverse, the church is remaining segregated, one of the most segregated institutions in the United States. So there's some serious brokenness, vertically and horizontally, here. 
And so here's what's even crazy, too, in thinking about the church and, the, and, and the, the primary issue of this. So you're looking at the beginning of the way God set all this up and the end, okay, of how God has set all of this up, of true unity between God and man and between one another, horizontal and vertical unity and joy and purposefulness and family. And when people from the outside are learning that that's actually what the Bible talks about, but then they look in between at the church and they see something that's completely different, it jacks them up. The witness of the church right now is currently having issues because we talk about this reconciliation and unity that we can have with God and yet none of it is happening within our own churches with one another. And so the witness of the church of Jesus Christ in our culture today is being tainted right now because of the inconsistencies of what has happened. But I want to tell you this. Thanks be to God that he has a solution to all of this. That's where I'm at now. That's when we get to Colossians 1. So look with me here. In verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And all of the brokenness, and all of the division, and all of the sin, God's plan was to come to earth himself and fix the problem through Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus is God himself. The fullness of God possess is found in the person of Jesus Christ. The fullness of God. All of the fullness of God's presence took up residence in the perfect in, in the person of Jesus. That's why in Christmas time we always talk about this that Emmanuel, okay? Emmanuel means God with us. All of God himself is caught up in the person of Jesus Christ. God himself came, saw all of the brokenness and mess saw all of the failed attempts in humanity of trying to bring it together, and then finally said, I'm just going to come and do it myself. And so he came. He wanted to extend his love and his mercy and his kindness and his grace. He wanted to fix the relationship that we broke. So then he decided to reconcile all things to himself, right? That's what it says here at the end. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. He came so that through him, we might reconcile himself to all things. He might reconcile himself to all things. Reconcile. Okay, so I've been saying the word reconciliation. So that word reconcile, though, here's what it means. To transfer from a certain state to another that is different. Restoring favor. To restore and transfer a certain state to another that is different and restore favor, okay? So basically bringing like, we were here and bringing us here, a completely different situation. Reconciling it, bringing it back together in the way that it ought to be to something that now is totally different and new, okay? That type of reconcile. He sought to transfer us, Jesus did, from a state of sin and division to a state of favor and unity. Let me say that again. Jesus sought to transfer us from a state of sin and division to a state of favor and unity. His goal was to reconcile all things to himself. His great sovereign plan was to restore that which was broken and bring back what was lost. This included creation, all of humanity, the entire cosmos, all being restored into the eyes of God. But here's what's beautiful, okay, 
Jesus didn't ask us, by the way, in thinking about all the brokenness vertically that we have with him, Jesus didn't ask us to come a part of the way to him. No, okay. So, all right, so um, in college, one of the greatest and stupidest things I ever did uh, was what we called the jumpathon. Okay, so we're in Orange City, Iowa, all right? There's nothing to do in Orange City, Iowa, okay? Nothing, absolutely nothing to do. The most exciting thing we could do is climb grain silos, okay? That was our idea of like a good time on a like Friday night, all right? So there's nothing to do. So, so we would have to just come up with creative things to do because there was literally, you know, we just didn't know what to do with ourselves. So one of our great ideas, I live with a bunch of guys in a dorm, about 70 of us, we were really tight. And, and our idea was uh, we're gonna do the jumpathon. Um, and uh, we would play in the Kamana, you know, student center a lot, and we would notice that in one of the closets were all of the high jump mats. So we concocted this theme, our, our, this scheme. Our, our dorm, okay, was a, a three-story dorm with an exposed stairway. So it's like you walk into the dorm, and there's like the lobby, and you can see a stair, a staircase that goes up, and then you see a balcony to the first, to the second floor, and then up, and a balcony to the third floor and a massive chasm, okay, like open space that goes all the way there. So we're looking up and we're saying, how can we jump off that without dying? (laughs) High jump mats. So, literally, so this was a little more like Ocean's Eleven, like blueprints, (laughs) all right, like, you know, here's like what this dude does, this dude does, yada, yada, yada. So so anyway, I, I was in charge of the blackout, okay, so basically we blacked out all the windows in like the whole front lobby, that way no one can see what was happening. And then in the, you know, the cover of darkness, uh, the, the stealing team, right, like went out. Uh, we, we had, you know, propped open the door secretly with a pencil. No one knew that it was there. Uh, like snuck in, grabbed it, uh, took, took the high jump mat uh, on a truck, got it back to the dorm, and then put it down there in the lobby. And we're like, let's do this thing. So we go to the second floor and we jump off. And it was like the greatest thing you could imagine. Free falling, landing, you're safe, you're totally good. So then for me, I'm like, I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to the third floor. Here we go. So I climb up and everyone's like, hey, you know, chanting my name. And if you chant my name, I'm going to do anything, you know. So, so that, 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 that's what they were doing. And I, I'm like a freshman in college at this time. So I'm like, yeah, you butt. So I like jump off. This is great, guys. I'm like bragging as I'm going. So I like land on the high jump mat. I'm three stories up. I don't know how I didn't die. So, so, so I, like, I like landed so hard that I like went down into it and hit the floor. And, uh, and I remember just feeling the bump and the wind got knocked out of me. My back cracked. Like, and, and, and I remember like I couldn't breathe and I was going like, oh, ah, ah, you know. And like all my friends were laughing at me. And I'm like rolling around, I'm like, no, I'm dying. Like, what is happening right now? Like, thought my back was broken, like, you know, all this. And they're just like, oh, you're such a loser. Why'd you jump up? You know? And uh, so, so, so anyway, after I like busted my back, had to go to a chiropractor, um, uh, they went and got a second mat, and then it was beautiful. Guys were like doing flips, you know, they're like loving it. It's like, thanks for doing it, Andy. We appreciate it, you know. And so, uh, so the next year, we decided to do it again. But this time, we'd get two of them this time. This time, I was like, dude, I'm doing the stealing team. I'm going to totally go on it. So we're doing it. It was like cake. You know, we're walking in. We take it. We take it out. Um, and we're loading it onto the truck. And here come the sirens. And this cop car pulls up. And, uh, uh, and so he grabs us. Long story short, we were actually looking at a felony because we stole from an institution. And so he was not, he did not find this cute, did not find this funny. And it was one of those moments where like, I'm such an idiot. Um, I'm not thinking, of course. 
so we're, we're going all the way in and sent all down. And so um, the, the campus didn't press charges. Everything was fine. We got a, you know, got a, got a fine, had to do community service. Our, our, uh, okay, so this was also bad. Our, our RD, I knew, thought it was like the coolest idea ever, but he couldn't like say it to us. You know what I mean? So he was just like, I'm really disappointed in you guys. <laughs> you know, like it was kind of one of those, like it was terrible. But, um, but for real, so here's what I didn't even realize. I was on the track and cross country team. The one person I never realized that I was going to get in the most trouble with was my coach. I stole from him. And what was crazy was I didn't even take a step in the direction to get that fixed. He had to call me and inform me of, hey, Andy, I found out that you stole my property and you haven't come and told me about it yet. You better get to my office right now. So here's what's true. And that whole reality, by the way, he showed me grace. That was actually one of the most impactful conversations of my life where my coach looked at me and he said, when are you actually going to grow up and lead this team like I know that you can? And it was just that jammed up moment. But, but here's what was the reality. I didn't even realize that I had broken a relationship. I didn't even realize I did it. I didn't even think. In my ignorance and my stupidity, I didn't even process that one of the most important relationships that I had, I fractured it. I didn't even take a step in the direction to, to find reconciliation because I didn't even know it was broken. Guys, that's the extent of what happens with us and God. Of like, we, we don't even fathom how disgusting and repulsive our sin truly is. We don't even understand the depth of chasm that's vertically distant between us and God. The, the extent by which reconciliation must occur. But here's what's beautiful. Jesus didn't look at us and say, you better come to me and inform me that something has happened. He said, I know that they don't get it. I'm coming to them anyway. And so Jesus came 100% to resolve the conflict. He took it all upon himself to say, I'm going to fix this, even though they were the ones who caused this brokenness. I'm going to fix it myself. So he came 100% of the way. This is what Ephesians 4, uh, 2, chapter 14 says, is that Jesus, okay, Christ knew that we are incapable of even going 100%, so he did it all himself. And what he did, therefore, which we see at the end of this, okay, the end of all of this is that the reconciliation occurred this way, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of Christ. So, so Jesus knew he had to go all the way, and then he also knew what he was going to have to do to bring forth reconciliation and unity with us again. The way that he brought reconciliation, the way that he brought unity, was through sacrifice. Reconciliation, hear this, reconciliation happens through sacrifice. Reconciliation happens through sacrifice. It was Christ's blood that was shed which brought restitution for sin and reconciliation of our relationship with God. We should have been on the cross. We should have been the ones taking the punishment for all of our sin because of the injustice, actually, that we have caused, the rebellion, the disgustingness, the, the actual treason that we committed against God. There was injustice, okay? We've, we've brought disdain towards the creator of the universe. Total depravity is what he sees it as. So the most just thing God could have done, hear this, is condemn all of humanity to hell. 
That's justice, actually. Perfect justice is that. So that's the chasm. And Jesus entered in the middle of it and said, I'm going to take hell for him. That's going to be justice done, and I'm going to take it upon myself. And the way in which he took that was sacrificing on our behalf, taking it upon himself, taking the punishment that we deserve so that justice could be done in the eyes of God, so that justice could be done. So here's what this resulted in. In Ephesians 2, 14, this is what Paul says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. So he's talking about Jews and Gentiles in this moment. Made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Jesus, in his sacrifice, did two marvelous things. He bridged the chasm of divide between us and God, and he bridged the chasm of divide between you and me. In that one act on the cross, Jesus performed Vertical and horizontal reconciliation in that beautiful act. We're all caught up in that holistic, beautiful unity. This is why reconciliation, though, guys, is a very difficult process because reconciliation requires sacrifice. And if we think about it this way, I think, I think it makes sense. Unity, okay, which is what happens with reconciliation, unity can't be accomplished without justice, Right? I just said that. I mean, like, we can't be unified with God unless justice was done for our sin. So then for horizontal unity, it can't be done until justice is done, until something is figured out. So it'd be like this. It'd be like looking at, every, looking at Jews in Nazi Germany and saying, hey, be at peace. Everything's cool. Like, it's fine. Be at peace. We're good. Everything's Okay. Like, we're saying the war is over. Like, there's, like, peace that's happening. Well, no justice has been done on Hitler yet. There can't be. So in that scenario, that's impossible to look at a wartime and say, there's peace in the war, but the enemy has not been defeated. Justice hasn't been done. You can't have peace. You can't have unity until there's justice. You can't have peace and unity until there's justice. And that's why reconciliation is such a difficult process. The brokenness, pain, sin, and injustice must be dealt with. Then reconciliation can occur. It's the pattern by which our own reconciliation before God was accomplished. So it's like me hurting my wife, Emily, in an argument. Me say something horrible and mean, and I've done that a kajillion times. I can't simply move on with him and be unified and for us to have a really great date night until our sin, my sin especially, has been addressed and I've confessed it and we've talked about it and we've been able to work through it and there's been forgiveness. That's now when unity can be accomplished, <laughs> is when sin is dealt with and justice is done. That's when it can happen. So the same thing is true in our own souls. Our unity with the Father can't occur until our sin has been dealt with. Okay? So that's God's solution. He brought forth Christ he sought the reconciliation. Jesus went all of the way. The unity is done, and the, and the reconciliation has occurred through sacrifice. But then here's wonderful good news is that Jesus has completely solidified our hope that this can actually occur, okay? And I want to rewind, actually, in Colossians 1, 1 verse 1, 15 through 20, okay, with that first half of verse 18. I purposefully saved this for the end. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus, here's our hope. It's what we talked about last night. Jesus is alive because the resurrection is real. He's been risen from the dead, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's fully alive. The resurrection's for real. We don't worship a dead God. We worship a God who's still alive. That's what Paul's talking about here in Colossians 1. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's specifically referencing Christ's resurrection here. So here's what's crazy. Jesus raised people from the dead in his time here on earth. Okay? You think about Lazarus. That's a story that happens in the Gospel of John. A friend of Jesus died, Jesus showed up, and he raised him from the dead. It was profound and it was crazy. But here's what's also crazy and a little strange. Lazarus died again. Jesus like raised him from the dead and it was beautiful and it was wonderful. And he did it to a few other different people. You can see in the Old Testament, some of the prophets would raise people from the dead, but they all would die again. <laughs> like, I mean, Lazarus was kind of funny. You know, he was just like, what are you going to do? You're going to kill me again? Jesus can just raise me again. But the whole reality is that he just, he, he died. He died again. All those he raised died again. Guys, if that was true for Jesus, that he stayed dead or he rose from the grave and then died again, he truly is then just a really great moral teacher. He's a really interesting movement starter. All back to who is Jesus. If he didn't rise from the dead, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about that and about us who would believe in a Jesus who's dead. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, have actually perished. Like they're dead too. They're just in the ground. They're not doing anything. They're just dead. If in Christ we have hope in this life, live this life only. If Jesus is dead and all we get from Jesus is how to be a good person, okay, Paul says this, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because if Jesus is dead, we're worshiping someone who's dead. So this whole thing we're talking about, are you better being able to be freed from your addictions in sin? This whole idea of you like being freed from the pain of death, looking beyond, the whole very idea of the Stevensons having hope in the midst of pain thinking, knowing, believing that they're going to see their baby Jude one day again. If Jesus isn't alive, then all of that hope is a lie. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything makes sense because it's true. All of it is completely true. He rose from the grave. He's still alive right now in heaven, seated next to the Father. This is what it means for Jesus to be firstborn from the dead. He was the first one to die and raise again and never die again, to be completely restored. He's literally still alive, not figuratively, not spiritually, literally, physically still alive, up in heaven with God. And his spirit, he now sends to dwell within us. He's still alive. 
which is insane for us to think about. So, so Paul says he raised Jesus from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's the incredible promise and hope that is found in the resurrection. This right now is not the end. I mean that in every sense of the word. We always think about that in terms of this life is not the end. There's more life on. But the struggles in your life right now, it's not the end. The, 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 you trying to figure things out in your faith and working through your doubts, it's not the end. The, the striving that we're taking towards being a church that reflects the kingdom of God, even when we were talking about last night and the brokenness that we have, like in looking at different churches throughout the country and the moral failure that's happening, all that stuff, this is not the end. Jesus is not done what, like resurrecting you right now and also going to be bringing you to a brand new resurrected life, okay? Heaven, we're not going to be this wispy, interesting, just kind of floaty angel going around. We're going to be more alive than we ever are right now. We're going to be like Jesus, never to sin, never to struggle with any of that, never to have our moral bodies fail, never to struggle to reach the high octave in worship and have your voice crack. You're going to reach it in heaven. It's going to be fantastic. Never have to stop eating because you're too full. You can keep going with all the beauty of it all. You're going to be fully restored. That's what it means to be like Jesus in the midst of that infinite understanding of who God is. And you'll never get enough of him because you'll be in perfect relationship with him. When Jesus raises you from the dead raises your own life now, you get spiritual glimpses of that reality. You get real tangible examples. You know, things happening in your life, free from sin, all those wonderful things, but we're all looking for the incredible hope that, oh my goodness, this is not the end. I will be restored. All of creation will be restored. So that incredible power that Jesus manifested and demonstrated by rising from the dead is why Paul says he is the supreme one. He says it here in Colossians. He says that he, that in everything, he might be preeminent. I want you to circle that word because that's the only time it's ever used in the whole Bible. Preeminent. What this means is that his victory over the grave has solidified that he holds the first rank, the highest dignity, has this supreme place over all. He's prominent. He's supreme. He's the greatest one over creation, over the church, over the new creation, over all of eternity. He's the supreme one. This is the summary statement to all that Paul is saying in the whole book of Colossians. Jesus is preeminent. He's the supreme one. And it is the fact that Jesus rose from the grave that he is the supreme one, that he indeed possesses the power and the authority to bring those who are far from God and far from each other near to God and near to each other. For his resurrection was his victory over death. His resurrection breaks the chain of sins and set us free. His resurrection enables us to become more and more like him. His resurrection gives us hope beyond this life. His resurrection is what makes reconciliation happen. It's the power by which all of this could ever occur. 
So I want to go talk back to this, this, the racial division within our country and in our world and in our church. Jesus is the great reconciler. He deserves, he desires rather, that all peoples will be united together in him. Hear this, a segregated people is never what Christ intended, ever. He knows that it's incongruent. He knows that it doesn't make sense. When people look at a God who reconciles us to him, but he can't seem to reconcile people to each other, he's not done yet. He's still loving his bride and all of her sin, still wooing her to actually live in the full reality of who, she, who he's made her to be. Because this is beautiful. When there is reconciliation that occurs within the body of Christ, okay, horizontal unity through reconciliation that occurs in the body of Christ, He restores the church to be radically on mission, and he restores the church to reach flourishment in this life. He set it up that way. For This is what he says about uh, uh, the unity that we can find with each other. In John 17, 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Did you guys get that? Unity in the church is about witness to an unbelieving world. Unity in the church is about witness to an unbelieving world. They look on this. Okay, get this. When there is a group of people who have nothing in common that share the most important thing in common, that all of a sudden are able, while our culture is trying to find ways, unity for unity's sake, to bring people together, people are united under the banner of Christ, but still diverse in all of their expression, the world looks at it and says, what in the world is happening right now? God must really be among them. Jesus is saying, by the way in which you love one another, the way in which you're unified with one another, the world's going to look on and wonder. And it's through that that they're going to believe in me as the gospel of Jesus Christ is displayed as well as proclaimed to everyone around us. But the same is true is that it's, it's for our good and for our flourishment that reconciliation ought to happen. Reconciliation between one another is for our good. It's for our flourishment. He made us to be a unified people. God's people, his church, is made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. It reveals that for all of eternity, we will be in a multi-ethnic worship service for all of eternity. And here's why. This is awesome. Paul talks about this. I mentioned this last night, that, that the manifold wisdom of God is made manifest in the church, okay? So in a multi-ethnic congregation, in a multi-ethnic environment, multi-ethnic community, in a multi-ethnic glory, we're all able in our beautiful cultural expressions to comprehend the multifacetedness and beauty of God together. It's actually better for us to be around people who are different from us who worship the same Jesus. Because we all live different lives. We all live, have different experiences. But we all claim to the same Jesus. <laughs> and he redeems us in beautiful different ways. And so we get to celebrate the beautiful wonder and reality of how Jesus is resurrecting us in unique ways. And also contemplate the beautiful reality that he's brought us all together. We, we, it's, we're better off when we're around people who are different from us who love the same Jesus as us. We're better off. He's designed us this way. So guys, this is, this is actually my hope for Salt Company Minneapolis. Okay, you guys. 
Okay, not like theoretical, just like, no, like straight up, you guys. The world is looking on at the church and asking this question. Has God truly reconciled us to himself? And if so, what about this reconciliation with one another? When you strive to seek reconciliation and unity between different people groups, you're showing off the glory of God to a world around you. So many of you have been kind of, I've even talked to some of you before. I know you guys are having different conversations. It's like, yeah, the church has got to do this. The church has got to do this. The church has got to do this. Here's what I'm saying to you. You got to do this. And you can. Because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. So the power to reconcile and bring people together Guys, that same Jesus, his spirit is within you. He can use you to actually be a vessel, an ambassador of reconciliation, as Paul talks about it. So my call to you guys is be a picture of the kingdom of God. Spur on your church, Salt City Church, to become more and more of a picture of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Pray for reconciliation. Pray for unity. Pray for it to happen within your own life. Build relationships with people who are different than you. Pray for God to bring people who are different than you into your life. Because you know that you're actually better off when you build relationships with people who are different than you. Because God's designed you that way. Strive for it in your relationships. And guys, I believe that you guys in your local church can shape not just your local church, but also an entire campus, an entire city, based upon a group of people who actually believe that Jesus can do stuff that crazy. He actually can. I believe that Minneapolis, that can be true. And in Minneapolis, there exists a chaos that's racially and ethnically, but when they're looking at a church that is somehow bringing something together, a group of college students that is bringing something together in the name of Jesus... Guys, everyone's going to look on and wonder, and God's going to be glorified. That's my prayer for you guys, straight up. You guys can do it. I'm excited to see what the Lord is going to do because you guys live in a diverse environment, and there's some people who don't. There's some people who can't actually experience the beauty of diversity because they live in a homogenous environment. Well, that's not true in Minneapolis. That's not true to you. So therefore, you guys can experience something that is beautiful, that will radically unleash mission and unleash flourishment in your own souls for the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's just pray. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for what you've done on the cross, for being our great reconciler, for reconciling us vertically, reconciling us horizontally. You, Jesus, are the answer to all of this. You, Jesus, are the one whom we are looking for. You, Jesus, it's not unity for unity's sake. It's not any of that, but it's actually for the glory of God that we seek any of these things. It's for our good, therefore, that we would seek these things. God, I just pray a specific blessing upon Salt City and the Salt Company of Minneapolis. Lord, would they be a testament, a witness to their campus and to their city that Jesus Christ is real, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, That Jesus Christ is doing a profound thing that our culture can never do. That Jesus Christ truly is the answer that they are looking for. 
God, would the unity that is seen within this salt company and within Salt City draw so many people to believe in the name of Jesus? God, would you do that? Would you unleash them? Would you do powerful things? We pray all these things in your name. Amen.